BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You ever seen a ghost? Been abducted? Heard your name whispered from the other room when you're all alone? No, you say? Me either. But if you're like me, you're still fascinated by the paranormal. It seems everyone else has had an experience, and you want to believe it all. So why doesn't it happen to us? What does it all mean? How does it work? Is any of it real? Welcome to Paranorm Girl, a show that will attempt to answer these questions by taking the paranormal completely apart in search of proof. I'm not a blind believer, nor a hardened skeptic. I'm just looking for answers and willing to accept what I find. Some of you might not know that sometimes I read submissions of personal paranormal experiences at the top of the show. It's been some time since I've done this, but FYI, I do. It has seemed so odd to me, demons being so prevalent in culture, society, media, and belief, that this season in particular... It was so hard to get personal stories about them. I do take that into consideration. But it does seem only fitting here at the end that once again, I have had what some might call an encounter. And I thought long and hard about telling it on the show because though it is spooky and I did encounter something, my interpretation of it is not going to be similar to a lot of listeners' interpretations of it. And I didn't want to leave you all with the wrong idea. Here goes. I woke up early in the morning a few weeks back. I was immediately lucid with no paralyzed state holding me down. It was still dark outside and the house seemed quiet. But something woke me up. So I popped my head up and scanned the room, right to left. And in the far corner... Standing near the bathroom was a woman. Anyone who listened to the conclusion of season one, apparently I have a paranormal connection with women in or around bathrooms. Not sure what the connection could be. But there she was, my eyes focused, and I just stared at her. She was wearing some kind of white gown with long sleeves cut off right above her wrists. Her hair was black, long, and especially pronounced for me, because it was hanging entirely in front of her face. I didn't think at the time, oh, that looks like a character from The Grudge, but now that I'm logically thinking back on it, sure, if I had to describe it, that's exactly what she looked like. But it's important to what we're about to talk about for you to know. I had zero fear of whatever this was. In fact, I had no real feelings about it as I was staring. Now, I I am a fairly logical, analytical personality. Even in that moment of staring at her, I had doubt as to what exactly I was looking at with my own eyeballs. In my head, I told myself, there's nothing there. Lay your head back down. Look again. She'll be gone. So I did. I laid my head back down, waited a second, and when I looked back up, there was nothing there but blank gray wall. Evidence for this being a case of having actually encountered something paranormal, there were dirty footprints the next morning. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm messing with you guys. No footprints. However, since this time, I have sensed, felt a presence nearby. I have seen a shape 
in my rearview mirror in the back seat while I drive. And of course, this experience has been on my mind prominently every day since. Just wondering, thinking about it, but, but still there. Evidence of this being a demonic force, as some might interpret this experience, zero. Zilch. Nothing has led me to that conclusion. So let's unpack it. The experience itself, though her visual appearance might be alarming in the light of day, what exactly did she do that could be interpreted as evil or demonic? Literally nothing. This wasn't an old hag encounter. She didn't try to hurt me, strangle me, possess me. She, she didn't scream or speak. It didn't feel threatening. It felt neutral and calm. She stayed exactly where she was, far enough away to get a good look, and then she disappeared once I made it clear in my mind that she would be gone. Have I seen her since? Nope. Have I felt threatened in the car? Nope. Do I feel oppressed? Is my life in the garbage can? Are my relationships suffering? Are people I love dying inexplicably, one after the other? Nope, 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 nope. The only thing one could latch onto here as far as an argument for being demonic, why appear that way? Remember, there was no fear. Her appearance did not strike fear. It was neutral, bordering on calm. Was it pleasant? No. <laughs> no. But not unpleasant. So if a demon is finally going to show itself and it wants to strike fear, it's going to go for the scariest thing, right? This objectively is an alarming visual. Okay, then where was the overwhelming sense of fear? If these things feed off of terror, well, it, it didn't eat that night. And I'm a big scaredy cat. I can be very easily scared with something unexpected like that. Easy pickings. From what I have understood in reading about a demon presenting itself, it likes to trick you into a false sense of security before launching inevitably into its attack, such as can be seen with reported experiences with the Ouija board. They're master manipulators, and being entities without any set form can appear any way they see fit to lure you in. If that were the case, then why present itself looking like the grudge lady? Like, that, that's not something I look forward to seeing again or, or anything, so why present itself that way? The second a sweet-looking, innocent little kitten is sitting on my chest when I awake, ready to lure me in, I, I will be in trouble. Perhaps I got my first glimpse into the astral realm. Astral projectors report seeing some crazy-looking entities over there, negative or dark entities, you know. Could it simply have been a, a negative, dark entity looking for a snack, seeing if the buffet was open? Sure, I, I could buy that. But I don't buy demon. And finally, the most likely possibility is that it was a hypnopompic hallucination. My brain is wired to see it, especially right out of a sleep state. 90% of what I have thought about and been researching this season has primarily been the demonic. I've been half expecting to see something. Men who look for demons see them everywhere. That quote is really about the expectation effect. My expectation of seeing something meets a creative and demonic literature-drenched mind in the darkness right after dreaming? That does seem more logical an explanation. But I also know, having been this involved in paranormal topics for over a year on this show, that logic just cannot hold a flame to some of this stuff. There are a lot of pieces to this puzzle that cannot be explained, cannot be defined, and we cannot understand them no matter how tightly we wrap our logic around it. It's the fine line we as skeptical believers must tread. Welcome back to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. Dudes, I got called a skeptic. A couple weeks ago on the YouTube page. Like, come on, bro. Do you even keep the nightlight on and sleep with one eye open? Have you heard the things I talk about? It kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. 
The commenter was right, though. The definition of a skeptic really is about someone reserving judgment until they receive enough information to confirm a thing. But I will continue to claim my believer status because, uh, well, there are things I currently believe in right now with all my heart, with no research or education to support it. Ghosts? Hell yeah. Energy work? Life after death? Not what it looks like, I don't know that yet, but there isn't a person on this earth who could convince me that there isn't something after all of this. I will be so sad when I cover it in an upcoming season and find the nail in the coffin proof that that is not the case, but I will accept it if that happens. Hmm, maybe that's why I'm waiting. Anyway, folks listening, am I crazy to not want to identify as a skeptic? What do y'all think about that? designation. Do you care personally? Maybe it doesn't matter. I don't know. All right. Uh, we have some beginning of episode stuff to talk about, some thank yous and shout outs, some personal words of wisdom, I'm sure, because I'm full of it. Ahem. And of course, the bulk of what it is that I believe about the existence of demons due to the information that I've uncovered over the course of the season. Today, I am drinking, what is the, I, I don't know what, I was going to be creative with it and, and give you a fun name for it. I really just threw some stuff together into a glass and shook it with ice, and, and that's what I'm drinking, and it's very sweet and, uh, and uh, savory, so delicioso, buddies. Uh, it's a beautiful, warm Louisiana afternoon. It's the conclusion episode. I'm about to quit working at the job that replaced the last job so I can have a few weeks to pack and commit to the show. Oh, and awesome interviews coming up. Life is good right now, you guys. Time to celebrate. Let's start out with a holla to the one and only Wicked Cat Clothing. Spooky season doesn't last just a month. Shop Wicked Cat Clothing year-round to get your horror, paranormal, spooky, and Halloween apparel. Go to Wicked Cat Clothing and shop apparel and accessories now. Save 30% off with code PARANORMGIRL30. I also want to take a quick second to spotlight a podcast that is a recent add to my regular listening list, but y'all, it is quickly becoming a favorite. Ken Mark hosts the show Somewhere in Dreamland. Ken covers the bizarre, paranormal, spiritual, and strange, and has some really fantastic guests on that I think you all would enjoy. So I'm going to go ahead and play his promo for you now. Are you into the paranormal, true ghost stories, Bigfoot and alien encounters, or high strangeness and conspiracies? Well, if so, then you should check out my podcast called Somewhere in Dreamland. My name is Ken Mark, and every week I interview authors, researchers, and experiencers alike in the fields of the paranormal, cryptozoology, ufology, and spirituality. So why not take a dive down that rabbit hole with me and search for Somewhere in Dreamland wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Somewhere in Dreamland. I really love being able to promote and share the shows that I truly enjoy, and Somewhere in Dreamland is one of them. Go check it out wherever you listen to your shows. You're going to dig it. And last thing, um, I really had an incredible time talking with Archbishop Plato Angelakis. I'm still kind of reeling from that experience and how it even came to be. There have been moments throughout this entire journey that just have had me floored and surprised and in wonderment at what can happen when you face your fear of failure and ridicule, accept that you can do this and just open yourself up to whatever might be, you know, go have yourself a little year of yes, see what happens. So thanks again to Mr. Plato for coming on. You really gave me a lot to think about, which leads me to this conclusion. This was a, a, a tough one to accept. Final conclusions on this show all have their upsides and downsides. I have lost followers over these, but um, that's all right, because I'm not doing this for followers. I'm doing this because I like it, and I'm learning a hell of a lot of stuff that I would have never known before. I hope you are, too. And, you know, the ones who mattered and were really listening to the information the whole time, you stuck around, even if you didn't agree, so... Let's just start at the beginning. I began the season with a bias. I was fairly clear about it. I uh, think I cracked a few jokes, even not knowing some of the more atrocious stuff I would learn. But nevertheless, yes, I began with bias that demons were not real. My bias wasn't even about the demons themselves, though. It was about the 
theological backstory and foundation. And I was certainly confirmed in my bias going through the history and legends and lore about Satan and the demonic names. How they came to be known as what they are today, the fact that these names and characters were all born of historical Greek, Sumerian, Roman, Akkadian, and Jewish names and characters, that that was pretty confirming for me. And I am not arguing anyone on their faith. I was never going to do that. Believe what you want. Believe what fills your soul. But the history is there. It's documented. I'm not going to argue religion, but I'm also not going to argue historical documentation. The fact that Lucifer, Satan, and Beelzebub, all names that have for a lot of people been used as monikers for the devil, had a pre-biblical backstory that just wasn't anything even close to relaying this character of master of evil and evil incarnate that we think of today, that is something I can't deny. I do not believe in the devil. So therefore, there can be no demonic minions of said character. And now that all of those folks have shut off the show, we can continue with the good stuff. So guys, I do think there is something to this demon and possession business. I do. Let me explain, though. So you remember how the Greeks used that word daimon to, well, well, they, they described literally everything spiritual with that word. They basically used it like we use the word spirit today. They also had something called an agathos daimon, which was a spiritual character that followed a person throughout their life, guiding and protecting and directing and interacting. This is all going to tie in to what I ultimately think is going on here. Early in the season, I talked names, a good handful of them, said them out loud, joked about them, revealed details about their history, backstory, intimate details, stupid details. Nothing happened to me. The pits of hell did not open up and swallow me whole. I was not possessed. My house is still standing. So right there, I find fallacy in the fear-driven belief that talking or thinking about demons, saying their names out loud, will somehow condemn me to misfortune or loss. It didn't. It hasn't. I'm doing well. Because either demons don't actually care, or there are no demons to care. We'll get into it. Next up, we talked about possession. The process, how one becomes possessed, how to not become possessed, stuff like that. It's one of the most widely held beliefs across the world that anyone is capable of becoming possessed. That says to me, since not every single religion and faith is born of just one single faith, that there might be something valid here. If all of these different separate cultures and belief systems are seeing something This phenomenon that they are deeming the overtaking by an energy outside of the person being overtaken, and this is happening across the world, that perks me up a little bit, makes me pay attention. During that lesson, we also talked about different stages of demonic activity in one's life, a little bit on oppression, but also encroachment and infestation. All of these stages have been documented and recorded time and time and time and time again. It's a pattern, and you should know by now, I love me some patterns. As to what is causing these patterns is the thing that is up for debate. Are people being possessed by demons, or are each and every single case the result of psychological disruption or attention-seeking? It has not come across my desk just one time that people who claim to be possessed are narcissistic. Now, I personally would get a little queasy and feel a bit dishonest to say that every single possessed person is just an attention-seeking narcissist, because I, I don't believe that to be true. But I do think it plays a part to some extent, because humans have innate narcissism. Yes, we do. Every single one of us. Yes, even you. And some people are just more narcissistic than others and are able to convincingly manipulate a phenomenon like this because in their screwy brains, they see the benefits they could gain from convincing others they are demonically possessed. But I think there is validity 
and and a point can be made for there being actual cases of possession. It is my opinion that they are a lot rarer than we've been led to believe. Um, I agree with the Catholic Church on this, that only one in about every 5,000 cases they review are valid. I might go one step further and say it's actually rarer than that. But here's where I veer off and uh, make some people mad. I do not believe that demonic possession is a thing. I think it's something else. Next up, we covered possessed locations and demonic hauntings. Places can be haunted. They can have attachments. They can have dark and negative attachments. How do I know this? As I said in that episode, I lived in two distinctly haunted homes growing up. They were distinctly different than all of the other homes I lived in. Is it entirely possible, thanks to the info from skeptics about mold, carbon monoxide poisoning, and electrical grid proximity, that these two specific homes were being affected by something totally not paranormal? Yes, of course. Why do I doubt that to be the case? The first place was out in the boonies. How far out in the boonies? Well, we would pay some of the men in the neighboring Amish community to come out and shovel snow so that we could get out. Surrounded by Montana wilderness, as far as the eye could see, no power lines running right over us, no transformer boxes, no electrical hub nearby, carbon monoxide poisoning or mold, mm. also I would doubt it because with this particular location, strangeness was happening in the surrounding woods as well, not just the house, up to a half mile in any direction. The constant feeling of being watched from the depths of the woods, the feeling of never being alone walking through them, a pet guinea pig and rabbit who mysteriously died horribly, I will spare you those details, mountains of antique glassware buried beneath mounds of dirt everywhere, everywhere. Our pet goats, who were clingy, to say the least, outright refusing to go with us into certain parts of the woods when we would take family walks in the evenings. There was a creep component to the situation that could not be ignored. And then, come to find out later, our place was located on an old homesteading site, which would explain the mountains of antique glassware, you know, old trash heaps for them. But a homesteading site, you guys... This was Montana. Homesteading days in the wilderness of Montana could be hard, sad, violent, tragic, strife-filled. Am I, am I painting a picture? I would not at all be surprised if the owners of the land ultimately discovered human remains in an unmarked cemetery somewhere close by. The second home... Now, this is where the bulk of my personal childhood paranormal occurrences would take place. And... This was the place that would ultimately, mysteriously, burn down after my family and I moved out. And the place had such a vibe to it. It was not at all surprising to learn that information about it. I won't go into any more than that, but suffice it to say, I believe locations can be haunted and have attachments because I believe I have experience with that. Demonically, though... We went through a handful of well-known cases and what was reported to have happened to the families, and they all have some pretty incredible claims as to what happened. The reports are not credible, though, and in my opinion, do not support claims of demonic activity. In the Ammons case, something I didn't mention that the Unrefined podcast reported on was that the landlord of the property would say that Ms. Ammons was only ever under demonic attack when she was late on the rent. The Adams home in Detroit, Michigan, it's really hard to find more than a couple of different sources on that one. Alcatraz and Eastern State Penn, they both have similar activity in some cases and both have similar histories in some cases. Prisons, especially older ones with dark histories, often are reported to be haunted. Demonically so? Not in my opinion, because again, if something paranormal is occurring in these locations, I think we might actually be talking about something else entirely and mistaking it for the demonic. And the final place we covered was the Long Island home haunting. While there was a string of occurrences that took place for this family, 
The only detail that really stood out that screamed, this is demonic, was the eight-foot-tall demon that stepped out of a mirror that the daughter of Jeanette Myron reported to have watched from underneath a bed. This is such an interesting and puzzling detail for me. As you're reading through this case, you can almost accept it as it happens. You know, it's, it's creepy, but nothing that you wouldn't expect from a haunted home case. The shadowy figure in the yard, the girls finding animal bones and teeth near the property, objects apporting from uh, kitchen cabinets, the girl being pushed by an unseen force, even finding the diary and evidence of dark worship in the basement, which would ultimately support an initial bias that the place is indeed haunted. It's a, a stream of events that you can follow. And then, out of nowhere, this story of a monster in the flesh, not just appearing, but entering our world via the mirror, which I'm gathering is, is acting as like a, a portal, and walking around on his hooves as the daughter hides in the same room. This is, you know what this reminds me of? The question on quizzes I remember taking as a kid, which of these things is not like the other? Cat, dog, gerbil, eight-foot-tall demon. I would like to remind you, though, of the thesis I mentioned in that episode where the writer went through three of the Warrens' books that they wrote recalling their cases with demonic activity in haunted locations. This thesis author was able to categorize the symptoms of these types of experiences into four different classes, sight and object-related phenomena, sound, smell, and feeling. It's interesting that a lot of the activities that fall under these classes have been reported time and time again. Yes, in these cases, but many others that I didn't talk about where people think their homes are under demonic infestation. But, here is my but. Look at it. Look at it. The occurrences included in all of these classes are reported in non-demonic cases as well regular haunting cases, cryptid cases, alien abduction cases. Hmm. Next up, we went over the story behind The Exorcist and cases of possession in children. This has been my all-time listened-to episode. I'm unsure if it's because people are interested in The Exorcist film origin story or if people were as angry as I was going through the cases of regular people taking their interpretations of the demonic into their own hands, having the audacity to believe they knew what they were doing, and committing horrific crimes against society's most vulnerable. I don't know if I mentioned on that episode, but I left details out because they were too gory. I don't even like children, but the suffering these kids endured in these cases was was too much, even for me. Were these children actually possessed? No. And there is nothing that could convince me otherwise. I think it's pretty clear they weren't. One of them had autism, for crying out loud. Autism. As for the origin story of The Exorcist... It's a fascinating tale with a lot of holes in it, period. But stories like that don't just come out of nowhere. Maybe this one did, but there have been many others. I don't think it's a controversial thought, at least to my paranormally-minded listeners, to wonder if there wasn't some activity or paranormal experiences to begin with, you know, that much like the Amityville case or the Snedeker case that ultimately were found to be hoaxes, that maybe something was happening on a much smaller level that just got blown way out of proportion. So I, I leave room for that. But I gotta say, does it even make sense that, um, that a child could conceivably be possessed Let's say, for argument's sake, the demon is real, and its biblical backstory and all that that entails is real. So there are two lines of thinking as far as who and who does not get possessed. One, which Archbishop Plato spoke to, was that demons and the devil do not care about those who do not have religion. Why would they bother with them? So, that is why only those with faith get attacked— but there must also be consent of some sort. 
which means a truly devout Christian would had to have had doubt or a moment of weakness at some point and allowed the demon to enter. Let's take the exorcist kid. He was uh, 13 years old when that all started. He couldn't have been a devout Christian if the story of his relationship with his spiritual aunt is true. And he was interested in all that she had to teach him about spiritualism and Ouija boards. I, I didn't read much of anything stating that he and his family were devoutly Christian. Uh, we know, of course, they turned to Catholic exorcists for the remedy, but that, that's not necessarily an indicator that they were a family of fundamental Christian values and morals. Also, if the mother was also willing to be involved with her sister's spiritualism as well, as I recall reading, and even entertain the thought that it was her sister's spirit creating the disturbances at first, calling out, is that you, Aunt Tilly, early in the case during one of her son's um, episodes? That says to me, not a devout Christian. Maybe has some beliefs, but not a black and white Christian. So, with this line of thinking that demons only want innocent, devout Christians full of morals and ethics who have a moment of weakness so they can capture the ultimate prize of that purest of souls, then, well, well, there, there is fallacy when trying to apply it to this situation. And many, many other situations, too. Let's ask, faith in what? What does that constitute? Faith in the, the Christian God only? Well, that can't be true because possession is happening across the world in many different religions, all with different ideas of a non-Christian God or creator. And what about the cultures in Africa where to be possessed can be an honor and considered a great responsibility, not necessarily always something to be avoided or gotten rid of? African diasporic religions where a person is possessed or ridden by an ancestor of theirs. Does this then mean that these folks aren't followers of the correct faith? If, if that is so, then according to this line of thinking, the demons or, or entities wouldn't want a thing to do with the people of Africa or Santeros, and yet there are reported cases of possession. The other line of thinking is that people who dabble in things deemed dark or outside the scope of Christianity or against an organized religion, practicing spiritualistic ideas, tarot cards, Ouija boards, automatic writing, witchcraft, etc., etc., are the ones who need to watch their backs. The devil gonna get you. But again, if that is the case, why does it seem to only be the faithful that get possessed. And I'm still waiting on my possession case involving an atheist. Still waiting. It's a, it's a real quandary, isn't it? I realize now I started out arguing that it doesn't make sense that children get possessed and then just went right into uh, possession in general. I just, I, I guess this is a part of it I, uh, that I don't understand. I want to understand it, but the things I have learned and been told do not make any sense. Adding to this inability to understand, I do actually think that possession by a spirit is possible. Or, you, you know what, at the very least, an attachment. And I think it's incredibly rare. Real possession or attachment, it may be happening, but it's just not as prevalent as it's made out to be. I think it's possible because of my um, opinion that locations can have attachments and objects can have energetic attachments. And that is possible because we're energy. Everything's energy. Spirits are energy. We're all made of the same stuff. So if one frequency matches another frequency, then the two shall meet. There you go. Which leads me into the next thing we discussed, possessed objects. Though there are a lot of merchants out there hoaxing their non-haunted wares on eBay, there are a vast number of very interesting accounts of paranormal occurrences taking place once a haunted object is obtained. I don't get too carried away with the more feverish claims of dolls causing people's death, of objects levitating, paintings causing homes to burn down, you know, like that kind of stuff. That is complete fear-mongery. But... It's still a 
pretty widely held belief in the paranormal community, and I agree with it, that objects retain energy. They pick up energy. Sometimes it's calm and nice, sometimes not so much. I am decided I will not go so far as to say that objects can become fully possessed. I I understand some think it's a vessel that can hold a spirit. I would argue spirits do not need to be held inside of inanimate objects. I, I hope that makes sense, because the more I've learned and seen the amount of hoaxes specifically perpetrated with demonically possessed objects... Um, it, it all seems more like a like a human being thing than a spirit thing. Like, why would a spirit who is free to go about the literal universe and time and space and, and fly and learn the mysteries of existence unshackled by physical limitations choose to imprison itself inside of a, a you know, like a like a Fenton glass slipper inside your grandma's closet? Like... Along with my general possession argument, I guess that possibility does not entirely make sense to me. But I still agree that certain objects can retain energy and ties to certain spirits, especially if it was important to the spirit for any given reason, bad or good. Or the spirit just likes it, you know, finds it cool. Or hell, finds you and your energy cool and just wants to hang around. And and now you've decided that your grandma's antique glassware collection is haunted. And so you, you put your attention and focus on it. And so the spirit is like, I makes me feel like I'm getting attention at least. I'll hang around these disgusting knickknacks. You know, I could see that. But specifically possessing an object, that just makes it seem like they're stuck there. And, and, and I don't think that spirits get stuck anywhere. Maybe I can't speak for all spirits, though. According to some well-known psychics, we are the same people upon passing, just expanded and in energetic form. I know I've stayed in crappy situations before by my own will and desire to do so, full well-knowing I could move on, do something better for myself. You know, maybe, maybe that's what's going on. Back to demons, though. Are demons possessing Nana's glass slippers? I don't don't know. Let's say again, for argument's sake, that demons are real and their backstory real. What the hell use do they have for some inanimate object that has no soul? Unless they are certain that at some point they are going to come into contact with a human being that has the, the kind of soul that they think they want to try to take, like... I think it would be incredibly unlikely. A spirit of someone or something who has an emotional connection to the item, sure. A demon that doesn't have any connection to the object and no obvious immediate reason to possess it. Well, well, that, that wouldn't make sense to me either. Next up, we covered quite a bit on exorcism itself. We talked a handful of variations around the world, even a celebratory good version of possession and no need for an exorcism taking place in Africa. We talked about its history and misuse of it, ultimately leading to official guidelines set by the Roman Catholic Church. Something I really appreciated about Archbishop Plato's process being in the independent church was that he still followed the process he'd been taught at the Vatican while remaining free and open to spiritual gifts and working with salt as a means of cornering the evil inside of a home, which is a a tactic also used by pagans and Wiccans and spiritual lay people of all sorts. Like, he didn't close himself off to things because, according to Uh, a Christian faith, it might be considered off-limits or witchcraft or demonic to do so. No, he found his way, and according to him and his record, his way works for him. Love that. But back to uh, exorcisms. I also discussed and hopefully clearly expressed my disdain for deliverance ministries and the fees they charge for sham exorcisms. I think it's pretty clear that they are taking advantage of people in true need of help. Maybe they realize it, maybe they don't. If they do, shame on them. If they don't and really think they are doing God's work when in the process of exercising a negative energy or entity, I, I have watched the videos. Like, I see how they are conducting these events. I believe it is highly likely they are doing more harm than good. And it's dangerous. 
And these practices need to stop. Literally, look, leave it to a certified and sanctioned exorcist if that is the route you want to go. Or go get a psych exam. Those should be the only two options on the table. Enough said. Finally, demonologists and experts in the field. Some of the biggest takeaways I got from this research is the education is there for the taking, but also a lot of damage can be done if the education falls into the wrong hands and is interpreted and skewed for a personal dark agenda. (laughs) Satanic panic. (coughs) Montague Summers. (coughs) But also... I realize that the education can be used for good for the bringing of a broader scope of education to the table for helping people, for bringing an enlightened, skeptical first, paranormal-friendly approach to all of this with someone like Sarbajit Mohanty. He's like 25 right now, still just a kid, and already discovering and, and coming up with some really insightful ideas. So I wish someone like that luck and, and hope he keeps going with his open-minded, skeptically-oriented approach as a demonologist. Let's take a quick breather here before I launch into the final summation. First things first, today is a celebration. I love that we are here, and I full well know that I wouldn't have had some of the best moments and breakthroughs with this show this season without the people I've met along the way. Knowing how some people tune out on things like this, I I wanted to try something fun with this thank you segment because these people should be recognized and remembered and known. Um, We used to do this thing in our drama school at college at the annual department picnic that I thought was cool. Since we were all actors in the making, they gave us awards for usually some tongue-in-cheek, you know, funny nonsense, whatever. Some were real. Um, I won Best Kiss the last year for my lippy work as Catherine in Proof. Thank you very much. They were called the Paper Plate Awards, and they presented you with a paper plate with whatever the award was written in Sharpie on it. I don't know. It, it, it was cute. It was cool. Um, I can't do that here because y'all are there, and I don't currently have any paper plates anyway. So the Paranorm Girl podcast is proud to introduce the first ever seasonal PGP Choice Awards. First and foremost, Dave at DaveZilla.art. An amazing artist. You guys should really go follow on Instagram. You've been there since I had around 21 followers on Instagram and around about five regular listeners. You have been truly supportive at every turn, ready with a comment or a funny, because you actually listen to the show every week, and that is beyond valuable to me. Dave designed the art on the back of the t-shirts that are now available for purchase. Um, He's given me some amazing ideas and has always been willing to share his knowledge on the occult, Wicca, Pagan, Santero, anything I asked about. He said, I gotcha. I'm proud to call you friend, friend. I hereby award you best artist, buddy. Will Whalen, brother from another dimension. Fuck that guy. Breathe in, breathe out, repeat. You're an incredible writer, sensitive, and champion of the things that need championed. You gave me stickers that spoke my heart and advice that empowered. I can't wait to have you on the show because you have an awesome story to share. Thank you for contributing to the Buy Me a Coffee this season. Thank you for supporting the show always. And I'm sending love to you and Rocco. Beautiful boy, fly high and tell Torky I say, good boy. May you both be enjoying Kongs with bottomless amounts of peanut butter. I award you, Will, best kid and brother. I have a group effort award next. Thanks to all the guests I've had on the show this season. Like I said, the conversation series took on a mind of its own and would not have been complete without the people willing to share their time and knowledge with me. Paranormal investigator Jason Fife, paranormal podcaster Mike at Extreme 13 Podcast, psychic lawyer and explorer Mark Anthony, pet medium and author Rob Guttrow, Mandela Effect moderator River, and of course, archbishop and exorcist Plato Angelakis. You all taught me things that are invaluable, and you made this little introvert feel so comfortable having the conversations I've wanted to have but never had the words to start. I award you all with best guest. 
My Rental Company, thank you for taking an early chance on this show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I cannot appreciate your contribution to the season's success enough. You get the award for Best Motivator. Wicked Cat Clothing, my darling, you are spooky and Halloweeny and right up my alley. Thank you for saying yes and for your support of me and all of the podcasts that you support. You have amazing merch that I back 100%, an incredible vision and drive that I hope to one day encompass. You get best inspiration. And last, but certainly not least, someone I met early on and gets the standout thank you award this season. You are someone I consider a guide, a true professional, and someone I can turn to with any question or problem that arises. You always seem to have good insight. Someone who has been through it and is willing to try it all over again. I love your show and never miss an episode because I know just what kind of person is behind that mic. You are a friend and... You have exposed me to so many possibilities and avenues and new ways to think about this whole journey. I cannot thank you enough for your help. Jordan Klein at the Fireside Paranormal Podcast. I award you with Best Host. An honorary thank you from the bottom of my heart award goes to my partner, Lee, for putting up with my constant chattering on the show and complaining about literally everything. And anyone who has ever reached out with messages, comments, constructive critique, or suggestions, you make this little train chug on. Thank you all for indulging me in my dream Oscars speech. Didn't get to slap anybody, but, uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe next season. Maybe next season. I will link all of those folks in the show notes. Please go follow them and tell them I sent you. All right. Now for the final summation. So I take all sorts of things into consideration for these conclusion episodes, such as the lack of personal experience submissions or my initial bias that I was transparent about right at the start. I take that into very serious consideration as well, especially because it's important to be fair and not allow my own ego to cloud the information I have found. I said I wanted to be sure to give this subject a fair trial, and how fair is it if I state my bias of, well, the demon isn't real because of my disbelief in a literal interpretation of the Bible or belief in things like angels and God and Satan? So I consider how my bias might have affected my ability to maintain an objective take here in the end. And then, of course, I consider every single deep dive lesson that has taken place over the course of the season, haunted locations, haunted objects, uh, demonologists, the history and legends throughout humanity's existence, the harm that belief in demons can do weighed against things like humanity's uh, predisposition to expectation effect and bias confirmation and fear of the unknown. But I consider the harm inflicted because of these factors, especially to our most vulnerable. And if we talked about it, though my guests are a little varied and not necessarily specific to the topic we are learning, I take what they have learned and are willing to share into consideration. And at the end of this episode, I give you my final thoughts. Please keep in mind it's Fine to not agree, to think I'm wrong. I still love and appreciate you all. With that, here we go. I spoke with two people recently who I am close to in my life, just because I was curious what their thoughts were on this subject. One said that they flat out do not believe the demon could be real. I get that. When pressed, it was because they don't believe in the theological backstory that supports them. When pressed, it's because they just don't believe in anything that cannot possibly be explained by physical science. That is a fair stance and a fair point of view, one that I uphold, but also one that I know is not airtight. Because there are preternatural events, things happening that cannot be explained by science. And as we well know, and if scientific evolution teaches us, science does not have all of the answers. Even here in the natural world, for what we might think are very basic questions. Why do we yawn? Why do we dream? Why do cats purr? So I asked the second person, 
who couldn't have had a more different but interesting viewpoint. This person believes that we are in a simulation. The simulation theory truly can explain everything. I like the simulation theory as a cause. While it's always in the background now as a possibility, it's it's not my go-to belief, as I explained why in the conclusion on Mandela Effect, but it is indeed something I think about. Um, their theory, when asked, what is a demon? They said, well, it's either a virus or a program, but then added it might possibly be some program designed to challenge us. Or, and this surprised me, some virus put in by another simulation program or designer in order to break us down. These are the kinds of theories I live for, truly. Theories and opinions abound with this topic. There is no one uniform take on it, which leaves room for debate and contemplation and interpretation of our own experiences with it. As someone who deeply respects science and the advances we are constantly making, but also someone who prefers to remain skeptically open to things, even if I've never had the experience myself, I love that as of this moment of recording, we as a people are still free to have this discussion and implement new information and theories. Once upon a time, you were burned or tortured for doing such a thing. Let's, let's not go back there. So let me start with the easy part. Possession. Do I believe that possession is real? The possession that I have seen in Deliverance Ministry videos and heard about in their stories and articles? No, I do not. These things are so dramatized and so grandiose and so uh, just not genuine, especially the videos. That's my actor speaking. I know what bad acting looks like. I know that beyond what the average viewer is ready to accept. I could pick it out of a lineup. But have I heard and read accounts of attachments of entities that floor me? Yes. That makes me doubt and question? Yes, absolutely. And reports of possession itself uh, are so widespread worldwide in various cultures and religions that I know something is happening here. Something is going on here. So I accept that an energy or spirit has the ability to take over or attach itself to a physical body or place or glass shoe. They do. I believe that. That was not a belief I really had at the beginning of all of this. I've solidified that prospect now. All right. That being said, do I believe the demon is real? Are they having themselves a little possession party? Yes and no. The theological backstory does not, um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. I wasn't raised that way, but as I got older uh, and exposed myself to this faith and their Bible later in life, uh, all that I have read in it and understand about the story, I still do not believe that this interpretation of a demonic entity is correct. I'm far too aware and educated about it at this point that the Christian Bible is a, is a retelling and a reinterpretation of the religious documents that preceded it. What I do look at closely, though, is going to go back to the time in history before the demon was the demon. It was a daimon. This word... Daimon was a Greek word referring to a wide range of spiritual entities. When I first came upon this word, I falsely understood it to be a wide range of darker entities, but upon further investigating, they did in fact use it in a broader sense in order to describe any number of intermediate beings considered to be between humans and the gods. They were thought to shuttle messages between the gods and humans and also control all manner of magical powers, divination, spells, and rites of priests. They were thought to control all matters of the supernatural on earth. They inspired prophets. Um, they controlled the lightning and the flight patterns of birds. This term 
was a taxonomy to describe powerful beings who were not themselves gods and events and circumstances under their control that were above normal or had meaning to people. Daimon could also refer to the souls of the dead, which had a magical element to it, as one could call upon these particular entities for help with spells. For the most part, daimons were helpful and human beings could recruit and command them to do their bidding. Another idea of the daimon was that everyone had one within themselves that they could call upon. It was a spiritual element of your own soul that would inspire and guide you. And just as they were in form, something between the human and the god, so too were they morally ambiguous, not necessarily good or bad. Religious studies scholar Andrew Henry, who also runs the YouTube channel Religion for Breakfast, is where a lot of this recent enlightenment and ultimate sensing of my own personal belief on this subject of demons comes from. I've linked his badass educational video that all of this information came from for this segment. He also goes into the historical transition of the daimon throughout the Roman Greco and Jewish apocalyptic interpretations that ultimately land us here in how we view the demon today. This is the type of information that we all need right now. He's not preaching. He's not down or up playing. He is educating us on historical facts. These historical facts are indisputable. To deny that now, at this point, full well knowing where the term began and how it originated, is an emotional hill to die on. You can argue, though, based on this information, Kristen, if demons are just these daimonia, then doesn't that actually support the notion that demons are in fact real? Sure, absolutely. But the menacing, manipulative, evil entity with the horns and the pitchfork that you are calling a demon is the figment of imagination here. If we are being accurate, we would be classifying all entities that we know of today a demon. Some would be easier to accept, such as Black-eyed children, shadow figures, the old hag, jinn, the yokai, etc., etc. But it would also include our spirit guides, who we look to for guidance and protection. The ghosts of our ancestors, who we might look to for strength in difficult times. Or archangels and saints, who we call upon for help with certain hardships and situations. And calling these entities and forces demonic just would not compute for most people. I spoke earlier in the episode of things that I believe without proper proof. They are purely beliefs. Another of mine is the idea of a higher self and of spirit guides. An interesting turn of events here for me in the final hour is that I have discovered that what I have uncovered about the concept of a personal daimon does not conflict with what my initial spiritual belief was. In fact, it supports it. Is it possible what I've been calling my higher self, my spirit guides, is what the ancient Greeks called daimon, the divine spark that is in all of us, a mysterious force in the ether that cannot be understood within our limited human mind, but is still felt, still known to be there, guiding, protecting, speaking to us when necessary, and maybe unintentionally scaring us because what we see, if we should see it manifest, does not align with what we've learned in church and in our Bibles. Socrates often spoke of his daimon, this unseen companion he considered a gift from the gods, and often spoke of his internal oracle whose injunctions he followed. At his trial that preceded his death sentence, he said, The favor of the gods has given me a marvelous gift, which has never left me since my childhood. It is a voice which, when it makes itself heard, deters me from what I am about to do and never urges me on. You could say that was nothing more than his conscience, the voice of reason within all of us. 
I do find it interesting, though, that over the course of his life and his interactions with this daimon and his following of its advice to successful outcomes, which ultimately would lead Socrates' circle of friends to never taking an important step without consulting it first to the same end, it would appear to have an intelligence and preferences that were separate, different than those of Socrates himself. I know I'm running completely off the track here, so let's let's get to the point. Ultimately, I'm saying what I said at the beginning of all of this. It was a question I posed. Was what we were calling the demon real, but not what we thought it was? Were we misinterpreting it? And I have to say, yes, that is where I'm landing on this. The demon is real, but I believe more so in the way that the Greeks believed it to be, a catch-all idea of something that is more than man, less than the creative spark that exists somewhere in the in-between. Will I use the term demon to classify anything paranormal that I come across? Probably never again. We've gotten to the point in paranormal evolution where we can now categorize the things we encounter into their very own classes and subclasses, and I much prefer to continue referring to my higher self and spirit guides as just that and leave the evil connotations of the term demon at the door. That's where I've arrived on all of this. Weird enough for you guys. It was weird for me too. Slippery slopes with a subject like this. I'll be so glad to get into something a lot less controversial like psychics and mediums. It is usually at this point that I would bid a fond farewell to you for the next month, but as I've already discussed, I've got some awesome guests lined up for the conversation series that will be taking place in the usual time between seasons that I reserve for research and rest. So stay tuned for those. First up, kicking us off is lead paranormal investigator at Spooky Bee Paranormal, Hannah Bird. Gals and guys, really looking forward to that one. That'll be up Tuesday, rate and review the show. I know you hear it everywhere, and I am racking my completely fried brains to figure out a way to say it in a way you might hear it. But rating and reviewing a show you love and support is free. It's easy. It's a public service. It's a nod of encouragement to the work and research we do on our end. And not rating and reviewing is a big old middle finger right to my soul. Just death by a thousand missing ratings. No, but really, you're keeping me from future subscribers, so don't be greedy. I know you love me. Don't be greedy. Rate and review. Um, follow, like, share on all the socials at ParanormGirlPod. Visit the website. Go get you some merch. Submit your story at ParanormGirlPod.com. This is it, you guys. Demons and possession. I can't believe we made it. Ah, cheers. I heard a philosophy last week on TikTok that is intriguing, and I wanted to share. I know, TikTok, once again for the win. The shadows that we create are two-dimensional, while we ourselves are three-dimensional. Three-dimensional things creating two-dimensional things. What's to say we are not the shadow of fourth-dimensional beings? This might go deep, but it's the final, final note for the season, so let's go there. I've spoken before on the concept of evil on other shows. I have held, ever since the first season, that evil doesn't truly exist. Not to say that people do not do evil things, but that's just it for me. Evil always seemed to be a human occurrence, and I refuse to see it in places paranormal, supernatural, that have yet to show me evil. But maybe I have to set my ego aside and admit that there might actually be evil. It exists whether inside of the realm of human reality or not. It would be ignorant to continue saying it doesn't just because I haven't experienced it there myself. But my shadow is not evil. There's nothing inherently evil about it. Neither am I. 
I would not say that my shadow is a reflection of myself, but it's a representation of me, attached to me. Let's punch up. If I am not inherently evil and I hold this philosophy that I am some reflection or representation of the next level up, some fourth dimensional entity, I would have to conclude that that being is not inherently evil either. And so on and so forth up the chain. But there is this evil in the world. People do see it, experience it. Perhaps it exists here because it does exist in other dimensions trickles down into the physical representations of said entities. This could tie into the simulation theory to some extent as well, I just realized, but uh, stay with me on this. If we accept that the shadows of things are shadows to us, us to the paranormal and beyond, are direct representations, then it might be a safe assumption to make that the evil that we see played out in the world around us the unimaginable atrocities, the horrors we inflict on each other, is coming from somewhere else. But for those of us who don't immediately jump to evil, who are skeptical of its existence in everything that we don't understand, tend not to see things like demons. If you rebuke things like evil, malevolence, omnipotent, manipulation, I don't think you experience these things. You can observe them in others and in their experiences, but don't automatically believe evil in them to be inherent. And so you also don't have the fear that would feed into this worldview that there is an invisible evil paranormal force out to get me. And so you don't see it for yourself. Men who fear demons see them everywhere. Maybe that's not just about the expectation effect. Maybe it's the key. I think back on the lady I saw in the middle of the night. She appeared unexpectedly taking a form that does not align with what I would think my internal understanding of what good and light looks like. But ultimately, she did nothing to harm me. She was just there, existing. It's a mystery, but it's an interesting lens to look at her and that encounter as something not bad or good, just ambiguously paranormal. I don't know what she was, but I was unafraid of what I saw. I wonder if she was but a representation of myself right now. That on some level, I chose to see her in that form. I'm still not sure what it could have meant to see her that way, but... Now I know, when I look at the apparition of something that 99% of people would immediately jump to evil when viewing the same thing, but I felt calm. I think it might be case in point that evil is in the eye of the beholder. It's what you make it. I'm going to leave you all with an ultimate theory I have about those who see the paranormal and those who do not, or see different things than what others do, or feel different ways about it. I think it comes down to what vibration you hold within yourself and what frequency you are shooting out there into the universe for a suitable entity to match and link up with. So what came first? Your fear or the thing that causes your fear? your fear of the dark, or your fervent belief that monsters live there. Fear of things you don't understand will cause you to see things you don't understand, stoking that fear, and it burns even brighter, and then you are resolved in it. Maybe try raising your vibration and see what happens. I don't know, do some yoga or something. I could give you 50 reasons why it is my opinion that the satanic demon does not exist. How many reasons do you have that they do? And why? Stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open. <laughs>